Sherlock Holmes versus Dracula, a play for radio by Glenn Dearman from the writings of Dr. John H. Watson, as edited by Lauren D. Estelman. With John Moffat as Sherlock Holmes, Timothy West as Dr. Watson, David March as Count Dracula, and Aubrey Woods as Professor Van Helsing. Sherlock Holmes versus Dracula. Allow me to introduce myself. My name is John Watson, friend and contemporary of Sherlock Holmes, about whom I have written certain accounts that have, I am flattered to say, been well received in many quarters. About this particular case, I have until now remained silent. However, I feel it my duty to set the record straight regarding a number of erroneous statements made recently concerning the events that I am about to describe. I refer in particular to a spurious monograph authored by an Irishman by the name of Bram Stoker and entitled Dracula. To begin with, the book completely ignores the part which Sherlock Holmes, and to a lesser extent myself, played in bringing that affair to its successful conclusion. Although Holmes does not agree, it is my belief that Stoker was induced by the unscrupulous Professor Van Helsing deliberately to falsify facts in order to inflate his own reputation as a supernatural detective. What follows will show, I think, that I do not make this charge lightly. I need hardly consult my notebook for 1890 to recall that it was in August of that year that my friend Sherlock Holmes with some slight assistance from myself, set out to unravel the most terrible and bone-chilling mystery which it has been my privilege to relate. The heat wave, which at the beginning of August had emptied London of all those fortunate souls who could afford to leave for the cooler temperatures of the country, had just broken. I had sought to make use of the break by taking the air, and thus giving my long-suffering wife a chance to forgive the unreasonable misanthrope with whom she had been living for the past few days. It was late morning when I chanced to drop in upon my friend in his bohemian lodgings and I found him hard at work transcribing information into one of those commonplace books upon which so many criminals would dearly love to lay their hands. I settled myself in a chair and waited for Holmes to finish. After a few minutes' silence, he looked across at me. You are right, Watson. Dr. Grimesby Roylott was indeed a murderer and a bully who no doubt richly deserved his fate. No doubt. My dear Holmes, this is too much. Am I to assume that you have now transcended the bounds of the rational and are competing with palmsters and mind readers? <laughs> Nothing so mysterious, Watson. There is no magic at 221B, unless one counts the ability to observe and make deductions based on those observations. But I've done nothing that could be observed. I've been a fixture since I sat down. No man is a fixture. He may think he is. And yet, by a careful observation of his unconscious gestures, of his expression, and of the direction in which his eyes wander, a close reasoner would find rare instances in which he could not define the mental processes of a man deep in thought. For example, as you sat down, I noted that your attention was momentarily claimed by my little monograph on poisons lying on the table. It is open at the chapter which deals with vipers and their venom. Now, since our only brush with such a means of death occurred in the case of the swamp adder used by Dr. Roylott in the attempted murder of his stepdaughter, it was not difficult to surmise that your thoughts were turned in that direction. My suspicions along these lines were confirmed when I saw a look of disgust and revulsion across <laughs> your face. And when that expression turned to one of righteous oh. anger, I was certain that I was on the right track. 
Whereupon I agreed with you that Dr. Roylott was a bounder of the worst sort and was pleased to see by your reaction that my reasoning was sound. Oh, Holmes, Holmes, you do yourself a disservice by explaining your methods. Mm. The effect would be so much greater if you left your subjects in the dark. And your chronicles of my little exploits would, as a result, be shelved alongside the fanciful works of Monsieur Verne and the Brothers Grimm. But tell me what you think of this telegram. Mm? It arrived this morning. Would like to consult you regarding lead column in this morning's daily graph. Thomas Parker, Whitby, Yorks. Well, have you read the article? I have. The problem presents one or two interesting facets. I think we should both profit from learning more of the particulars. Come in. Mr. Holmes. That is correct. And you, I take it, are Mr. Thomas Parker of Whitby. Ah, yes. Allow me to introduce my friend and colleague, Dr. Watson. How do you do? How do you do? Please sit down, Mr. Parker. Uh, thank you. Uh, you've read the item I mentioned in my telegram? I have indeed. I am its author. I'm aware of that. Oh, indeed? How? Oh. <sighs> the ink stains on the insides of the index finger and thumb of your right hand told me that you spend much of your time writing. That you are seldom off your feet is borne out by the rundown appearance of your heels. Well, journalism is the only profession I can think of which combines such energy with the more placid activity of putting pen to paper. <laughs> so I thought it likely that you were the same journalist who had written the rather interesting account to which you directed me. But all this is elementary. Pray, tell me, what is on your mind? Uh, uh, Mr. Holmes, I I've been authorised by my editor to extend you a fee in return for providing us with a solution to the mystery which took place in Whitby Harbour at midnight yes, last yes, night. Yes, yes, yes. We can discuss such things as my fee later, Mr. Parker. For the moment, I wish to hear a summary of the facts as you know them, in your own words, independent of the restraining hand of your editor. <clears throat> Very well. Until yesterday evening, the weather in Whitby has been much like that which you are now enjoying in London. Just before midnight, however, the air suddenly became so oppressively still that even the most ignorant town dweller would have realised that a storm was approaching. There is a great flat reef in Whitby which has caused the wreck of many a vessel unaware of its presence. Yes, I know of it. Well, the Royal Navy has installed a searchlight on top of the East Cliff for the purpose of guiding craft through the narrow alley that is the only safe passage from the open sea into the dock area. Last night, I was assigned by my editor to accompany the workers who were to put the light into operating order and report on the project's worth. I arrived at midnight and, as I did so, the storm struck. The wind howled and the rain lashed the cliff. The workers had all they could do to hold their footing as they swung the searchlight into position. And a great sigh went up when the light was lit and its beam shone out through the rain and darkness. When we saw what the beam revealed, however, that sigh was strangled in our throats. In the circle of light, a foreign schooner with all its sails set was racing towards the reef. Foreign, you say? What were her colours? Uh, she flew none, but her hull was unmistakably Russian in design. I see. You go on. Well, we braced ourselves for the crash we believed inevitable, and then a curious thing happened. Yes? Just when all seemed lost, the wind, which had been raging in an easterly direction, suddenly shifted to the northeast, and the schooner glided smoothly and easily into the harbour. Well, this was so unlike the disaster we had been expecting, and the abrupt change of wind such an unheard-of occurrence that I doubt any of us believe what our eyes told us. Well, I, I hope I'm not boring you with these details, Mr. Holmes, for I, I am trying to impress on you what it was like to witness the event. On the contrary, it is a most lucid and informative account. <laughs> what happened then? Well, our feelings of joy were premature, for as the schooner slid past, the searchlight fell upon the most horrendous sight, that of a corpse lashed to the helm. Good heavens. We were all so shocked that the men forgot to swing the light and, and the vessel slid from view. By the time they had recovered enough to act, there was a, a wrenching sound followed by a crash 
and the schooner had run aground on the sand near Tate Hill Pier. Oh, there is one more incident to tell you, although I doubt it is of much use. Every scrap of information is of use at this point, Mr Parker. Well, no sooner had the light been trained back on the deck of the ship than something that looked like an immense dog leapt up from below and bounded off into the darkness. A dog? Yes, I, I assumed it was a pet of one of the crew, but you may have some other theory. I... As I've told the good doctor here on more than one occasion, it is a capital mistake to theorise before one has all the evidence. But it does seem strange that the captain would allow one of his crew to carry a large pet on board when space is so important. Perhaps that is a question best left to a student of the Russian mind. We have yet to establish that the captain and crew were as Russian as the schooner. Yes, excuse me, but has no one questioned the crew about the mystery of the dead man oh. and the dog? That would be quite impossible, Doctor. You see, with the exception of the corpse at the wheel, there was no one on board ship. Good Lord. Tell me, Mr. Parker, who was first on board after the ship had beached? The Coast Guard on duty. Did he examine the dead man? Yes, sir. And threw up his hands in terror as he did so. Indeed. And why was that? Mr. Holmes, I saw the dead man's face when I went aboard. It was distorted so grotesquely that it was difficult to believe that it was the face of a human being. Distorted how? With horror. Naked, unrestrained horror. Such horror as no man has experienced since the beginning of time. Yes. You have a poetic turn of phrase, Mr Parker. I urge you to put it to constructive use. Describe the body. A man some years past middle age, black-bearded. His hands were lashed to the wheel, one over the other in the manner of a seaman who wishes to prevent himself from being carried overboard in rough weather. The chafing of the cords had cut his wrists to the bone, but it was the object that he held in his hand that claimed my interest. And what was that? A rosary, sir, with the beads wound around both wrists and the wheel. It was a strange sort of thing to find in those circumstances, hence my interest. That is all I can remember, save for the wounds. Wounds? Uh, two puncture marks at the throat, perhaps an inch apart, ragged at the edges and somewhat puckered. The authorities have asked us to withhold that information to avoid panicking the local population with the fear that a wild animal is loose in Whitby. I assume a physician was summoned? Uh, yes, sir. A surgeon, Mr Caffin, was called in to examine the corpse. He declared the sailor to have been dead for at least two days. In the pocket of the man's jacket he found a bottle with a number of pages of closely written script rolled up inside. I have since learned that they are an addendum to the ship's log. So far the press have been refused access to it. Excellent. You have a sharp eye, Mr Parker. And what of the ship's cargo? Fifty wooden boxes measuring some seven feet by three, containing nothing but plain earth. I am ignorant as to their ownership or purpose. And the dog? What happened to it after leaving the schooner? No one knows. It has disappeared. Hmm. An appealing problem, Mr Parker. Most appealing. Well, does that mean you will accept the assignment, Mr Holmes? I shall be delighted. <laughs> you may inform your editor that Mr Sherlock Holmes will look into the problem and that he will notify the Daily Graph as soon as he has reached a solution. Thank you, sir. I am most grateful. Well, Watson, what do you make of it all? It seems a somewhat dark and sinister business. I agree wholeheartedly. There was something aboard that ship, something that no man could look upon without risking the loss of his life or reason, and it is up to us to uncover it. What about the dog? And the strange wounds on the dead man's throat? Those, my dear Watson, are the mysteries which you and I are going to clear up when we reach Whitby. Unless, of course, your practice cannot spare you for a few oh, days. Yes, indeed it can. I will see to it that all my patients are referred to my neighbour and inform my wife that she will not see me for a while. Then make haste, Watson, make haste.
I warrant that the adventure of the foreign schooner will make an admirable addition to your little collection of thrillers. Within the hour, we were in a first-class coach and rattling over the rails on the way to Whitby. Holmes would have none of my attempts to draw him into conversation about the case, so much of the journey was spent in silence. In response to a telegram to Mr. Parker, informing him of the time of our arrival, the journalist was waiting for us when we alighted at Whitby Station. With him was an elderly gentleman with white flowing hair, whom, much to my surprise, Holmes greeted warmly. Good day, Mr. Caffin. I'm pleased to make your acquaintance. I, uh, oh, oh, you have noticed the bulge of the stethoscope in my pocket, Mr. Holmes. <laughs> For a moment I thought that you had done something remarkable. Indeed. Mr. Caffin has expressed an interest in this affair, Mr. Holmes. I thought that perhaps his findings on the death of the seaman might prove useful. Any information he can supply would be most helpful. It is an extremely puzzling case. How so? I can see no reason for it, and yet I would stake my reputation on the fact that the man died of a severe loss of blood. And the puzzle? Well, with the exception of two tiny punctures in his throat, which were far too small to be the reason for the loss, there were no wounds to be found on the body. I see. And another feature worries me. There was not a drop of blood to be found anywhere on the ship. You have my apologies, Mr. Parker. Until now, I have been referring to your mystery as a little one. I shall not do so again. Have you any new developments to report? Only that early this morning, a dog belonging to a local coal merchant was found dead near Tatehill Pier with its belly slashed open by a savage claw. I can only think that this discovery must have been a victim of our missing canine. Interesting. Most interesting. But you must be tired after your journey. I have booked rooms for you at the hotel. After you have rested, I would be honoured to take you to the schooner. I think I speak for Dr. Watson as well as for myself when I say we should be most eager to look into your mystery before we rest, Mr. Parker. Yes, indeed. I was hoping you'd say that. I have a four-wheeler waiting to take us to the pier. Have you discovered the name of the schooner yet? Oh, yes, sir. It's called the Demeter. A sea fog had settled over everything by the time we reached the harbour. The rather choppy waters had turned a gunmetal grey, and the vessels anchored in the area were reduced to indistinct shadows. Near the base of the pier, the schooner Demeter, with her sails in rags, was perched on a narrow mound of sand. Instead of boarding the ship, as I had expected, Holmes spun on his heel and trudged off across the beach, with head bent and hands clasped behind his back, studying the sand at his feet. At intervals, he flung himself down onto his stomach and peered at something through his lens. I stole a glance at the two men at my side and saw that they were watching him with puzzled smiles. As with most people, seeing my friend in action for the first time, they did not realise as I did that every one of his strange procedures was applied towards a definite end. When at last he returned to where the rest of us were standing, he wore a crestfallen expression which quickly became accusing when he turned it upon Thomas Parker. The cargo has been unloaded. Why, yes. Some men came for it this morning with five wagons. I, I was not here at the time and so was not able to question them. Their papers were in order, so they were allowed to take away the 50 boxes. But I mean, It's incredible. You engage me to solve a mystery, and then you make it impossible for me to do so by allowing others to trample all over the clues and take away the one bit of evidence I need to solve the problem. I'm sorry, sir. Come, Watson. I, I... Let us board the ship. 
Perhaps between the two of us we'll be able to piece together what little remains. Of course, Holmes. Of course. Oh. I'll stay here while I inspect the deck. Hmm? Over here. Where? I, I can't see you in this confounded fog. By the helm, man. We are in luck, Watson. The ignorant fools who allowed priceless bits of evidence to be carted away had the foresight to cut the rope that bound that poor unfortunate man to the wheel rather than to attempt to untie the knots. You've reached a conclusion, then? Only that Parker was right in assuming that the captain had lashed himself to the wheel. There are indentations in the rope ends that could only have been made by the man's teeth as he pulled the knots tight. But at least we know that for certain now. And your examination of the deck? Yielded nothing. The teak is too clean to show footprints. The rail is a different matter, however. Ah, what have you found? Blood, Watson. Blood. Our friend the doctor was in error in stating that there was none of it to be found on board the ship. I have discovered three places where drops of it spattered onto the rails when the bodies of the crew were cast overboard. You are certain they were murdered, then? Oh, my dear fellow, I was never in doubt of the fact. But we'll discuss these things in greater detail when we're alone at the hotel. Now, perhaps you would care to rejoin Mr. Caffin and Mr. Parker while I go below. I shall not be a moment. You see, Watson... It was imperative to the murderer that every last one of those aboard be killed, for he could not afford to take the chance of one of them telling what had occurred during the voyage. But who is he, and why did he kill them? I'm afraid I must disappoint you. I have as yet no answer for your first question, and although I have a theory regarding the second, it is too tenuous for me to air it at the moment. But I will say this. Our murderer is a man of tremendous strength. Hmm? It's no easy task to fling the limp body of a full-grown man over a rail three feet high. Well, surely it's no feat to drag No one was with... dragged. My dear Holmes. There were no heel marks on the deck, and the blood on the rail was not smeared. No, Watson. The murderer was capable of lifting at least as much as 14 stone high over his head and hurling it over the side. Good Lord. If what you say is true, then we are dealing with a brute. Precisely. Come in. Mr. Holmes, I... Oh, Parker, I... my dear fellow. What has happened? You look quite done in. Watson, a glass of wine for the man. Yes, of course. No, no, that's quite all right. It, it, it's merely that I am of an excitable temperament and recent events have proved rather much for me. I will be my normal self again in a moment. Well, I... sit down, sit down. How may we be of service to you? I fear you will not be pleased by my answer. I am here to ask you to abandon your investigations. Indeed. I was not aware that my methods were so unsatisfactory. Oh, it's not that, sir. The mystery has been cleared up. May I ask how? This is a translation from the log of the Demeter. All the answers seem to be contained in it. Hmm. I should prefer to hear your interpretation of its contents, Mr Parker. Oh, it seems obvious enough. The Demeter sailed from Varna on July the 6th. Aboard were five hands, two mates, a cook and the captain, who appears to have been the man we found lashed to the wheel. Ten days later, one of the crew was reported missing. A search was launched, but to no avail, and it was decided that he had fallen overboard during his watch. Within a week, another man was lost, under the same circumstances. By the first week of August, only the captain and his first mate were left aboard ship, 
The captain himself was manning the wheel at midnight on August the 3rd when the mate, screaming incoherently about something horrible in the hold, scrambled up from below and hurled himself over the side. The captain stated in his August the 3rd entry that he was convinced his mate, then a hopeless madman, was responsible for the sailors' deaths. But what of this entry for the 4th? I dared not go below, I dared not leave the helm. So here all night I stayed, and in the dimness of the night I saw it. Him. And later. But I shall baffle this fiend or monster, for I shall tie my hands to the wheel when my strength begins to fail, and along with them I shall tie that which he, it, dare not touch. And then, come good wind or foul, I shall save my soul and my honour as a captain. Well, I must say that those are strange words for a man who has seen the perpetrator of these heinous crimes take his own life. Well, when that was written, the captain had been at the helm for nearly 24 hours without relief. I think we can put it down to the ravings of a man in the throes of complete exhaustion. And the captain's death? I'm very curious to hear your theory as to the cause of the severe loss of blood. Mr Caffin is a fine surgeon, but he is also elderly. I think that perhaps he mistook an anemic condition for blood loss. The man died, I should guess, of heart failure brought on by that same exhaustion which caused his delusions. My word, but you have all the answers. Uh, then surely you can explain the presence of the punctures in the man's throat. And do not forget the dog. Quite right, Watson. By all means, let us not forget the dog. The dog, of course, belonged to one of the dead sailors. I am unable to explain the punctures unless they were shaving nicks. I... You, sir, are a disgrace. A I... disgrace to the legions of honest men and women who have courted death a thousand times over to make your profession the powerful organ of justice that it is today. I... Go. Take your transcript and leave. My colleague and I have no time for snivelling whelps who grovel before the voice of authority. I... I... Yes, sir. Ah. There is one journalist who will think twice before he places himself in the middle again. Well, what was all that about? He's covering up, Watson. Why should he do that? You saw his condition when he came in. Mr. Parker is a very frightened young man. Someone has decided to lay our little mystery to roost. You do not seem surprised at this development. I knew some influence was being brought to bear when I came across sets of wagon ruts leading to and from the stranded schooner. Evidence that its cargo had been carried away. Paw prints left by the infamous dog oh, the yes. chance to inspect the cargo all have been lost. I cannot conceive of that being allowed to happen unless the action had already received the sanction of someone in authority. I owe you an apology, Watson. Whatever for? For embroiling you in a case that can never be solved because of the official ramparts which have doubtless already been flung in our path. Tomorrow we'll return to London and forget the whole affair. I saw nothing of Holmes throughout the next few weeks, although I read of him a great deal. The murder of Sir Oliver Worth Benton of Coventry and subsequent arrest of his wife occupied the front pages of the London dailies for many a week. And when my friend was able to prove conclusively that Lady Worth Benton was innocent and that the gardener held more than a passing motive for having murdered his employer, one could scarcely walk down to the corner without hearing the detective's name mentioned. As for myself, I was too busy with my practice to leave my consulting room for more than ten minutes at a stretch, for the end of the holiday season had brought its usual quota of insect bites and summer colds, 
So I was taken completely by surprise when, shortly after I had retired on the evening of the 27th of September, my wife awakened me to tell me that Holmes was waiting for me downstairs. I'm sorry to disturb you at this hour, Watson, but if Mrs. Watson has no objections, I should like to borrow you for a few days. Something has come up in which your services may prove of considerable value. Well, I, I don't know if Mary The can... change will do you good, John. I shall see to it that Jackson takes over your practice. Excellent. Pack a bag, Watson, for you will be staying with me until this business is concluded. I will see to that. Thank you, my dear. Now, what is all this, Holmes? You will find a summary of the events of the past week on the front page of this issue of the Westminster Gazette. Mm -hmm. I think that one or two of the details may claim your interest. Huh? The Hampstead Horror? Read on. Although there have been no fatalities as yet, the discovery on Hampstead Heath over the preceding four evenings of small children, badly frightened and somewhat weakened but otherwise unharmed except for slight injuries, brings back memories of the shocking atrocities wrought in the East End by the fiend known as Jack the Ripper two years ago. The only information the constables have been able to glean from the young victims is that a bloofer lady dressed in white, had asked them to come with her into the shadows and the next thing they remembered was being alone in the darkness until a policeman or early morning stroller came upon them. In all cases, the tots have shown a uniform lack of ability to explain either their weakness or the wounds found upon their throats. The wounds seemed such as might have been inflicted by a rat or some equally small animal and their presence suggests that the culprit called the bloofer lady may be a dangerous monomaniac performing experiments on small children with laboratory animals. What a beastly business. Beastly? Well, yes, I suppose you're right. But come, Watson. Surely your professional altruism is not so fully developed that it has been allowed to impair your logic. What significance, for example, do you attach to the children's weakness and the presence of these singular wounds upon their persons? Well, weakness and dizziness are common reactions to a frightening episode. As for the wounds, it would be foolish to blame them on a chance meeting with a stray animal, since they've shown up on not one but four successive evenings. I believe the journalist who reported these incidents is correct in thinking that some demented practitioner has been conducting experiments in which a carnivorous beast is set upon a helpless child. The presence of a woman in white would seem to bear this out. Admirable, Watson. <laughs> I'm pleased to note that the years you have spent observing and chronicling my methods have not been wasted. Oh, then you agree with my conclusion? No, you're totally wrong. Oh. Now, what possible motive could a scientist, demented or otherwise, have in subjecting stray children to the bite of some predatory creature, then releasing them? Hmm? Surely this person is aware that wounds will result? And yet the period that elapses between the time these tots are reported missing and the time they are returned to their parents is hardly long enough to observe any further reactions. So your crazed practitioner goes out of the window. Mm. Well, then I confess that I'm quite in the dark. Why are these children wounded, and, and what caused the wounds? These are deep waters for me. As deep, perhaps, as those which closed over the mystery of the missing crew of the Demeter? Holmes, you don't think that the two cases are related? The constable who discovered the latest of the child victims described the wounds on the boy's throat as a pair of punctures roughly an inch apart and torn at the edges. Now, does this description strike a chord in your memory? The wounds on the captain's neck. Precisely. Now, as soon as your wife returns with your bag, we must be off. Off where? To Hampstead, of course. To explore the infamous Heath.
No doubt, Watson, you are wondering what we are doing here in the middle of nowhere. Where are we going, Holmes? I'm more confused than ever. Patience, my dear fellow. I promise that before this night is over, you shall have all the answers you seek. For the moment, we are making for the cemetery over there. For what purpose? To gain admittance to the white crypt in the centre. Come. Here is where your lantern will prove useful, Watson. Cast a beam on the lock and let us see if my talents as a burglar are... Hello. What's this? The door's already open. What can this mean? Draw your revolver, Watson. There is danger inside. Shh. Who are those people, Holmes? And why are they gathered around that open coffin? I believe I know. My, my God! The body inside. It's the woman in white. No! I'm asleep! No! Oh, that man in the middle, he has a wooden stake in his hand. He's... He, good God! No! Again! He, he's killing our hose. Look, he's... Wait! Professor Van Helsing, I think. What? And the others would be Dr. Seward and Arthur Homewood, Lord Godalming. This gentleman, I do not know. Allow me to present Quincy Morris, a friend of Lord Godalming. Sir? Who are you? How is it you know my friend's names? My name is Sherlock Holmes. And this is my associate, Dr. John Watson. How do you do? As to the rest, I shall be delighted to exchange information with you in a more convivial setting. I accept your offer, Minia Holmes. I have a room at the Barclay. There you will tell me your tale, and I tell you ours. It is a tale not for the squeamish. It is a tale of Count Dracula. I judge by your friend's expression that he thinks himself in the lair of a murderer. Absolutely. He has not been told? He has not been told for the simple reason that I myself did not know until recently. Well, what exactly do you know, Minia Holmes? I know that the woman whose existence you ended so abruptly tonight was a vampire. I know that in life her name was Lucy Westenra, and that she was engaged to be married to young Lord Godalming. I know also that the man who condemned her to her undead state arrived in England aboard the Russian schooner Demeter, which docked under the most mysterious circumstances in Whitby on August the 8th. I'm counting on you, Professor Van Helsing, to fill in the details. Your reputation is well deserved. It would interest me to know in what manner you came to your conclusions. There will be time for that later. For now, I think it is in your own best interest to tell us your story. Well, my name, as you have already divined, is Abraham Van Helsing. I have been physician and lecturer at the University of Amsterdam for many years. There it was that I first met Dr. John Seward, and it was through him that I became involved in the case of Miss Lucy Westenra. This lady had fallen ill early in August, and in spite of recurrent episodes of seeming recovery, continued to fail until her very life was in danger. A most puzzling to my friend was that each relapse seemed to occur immediately after the lady was discovered walking in her sleep 
outside her lodgings in Whitby. Then came the incident which, when I learned of it, convinced me that we were dealing with something far more terrible than simple illness. A friend of hers, Miss Mina Murray, discovered her one night upon the stone of a suicide's grave in a cemetery near the house. Bending over her, in Miss Mina's own words, was something in black. When Miss Mina cried out, the thing raised its head and turned upon her a face with gleaming red eyes. By the time she got there, however, it had vanished. Miss Lucy had fainted. That night her health began to fail again. One moment. When was this precisely? The date was uh, August the 11th. I see. Pray continue. It was shortly after this event that I was summoned. You have been rightly hailed for your powers of deduction, Minia Holmes, and yet I flatter myself that even your lightning-quick mind could not have arrived at the conclusion faster than did my own once the stricken woman's symptoms were described to me. The thing in the symmetry, the sudden decline, the presence of two tiny wounds upon her throat. Was there ever a more classic case of the dark things of the night at work than this? Without hesitation, I took the precautions which have been ingrained in me since childhood. Strands of flowering garlic I strung about the windows of Miss Lucy's bedroom, a silver crucifix I placed about her neck. But alas, these were wasted efforts, for I had not taken into account the ignorance of Miss Lucy's mother, who removed the garlic in order to allow her daughter to breathe the night air. If only that were all that entered the room that night. The final decline had begun. On September the 20th, Miss Lucy expired. And on that night, the bluefer lady was born. What ineffable twaddle! Holmes, this creature is seeking to escape a charge of murder by claiming that he did nothing more than aid in the destruction of a phantom, when it is obvious that his victim was flesh and blood. I've never seen a more flimsy attempt at disguising one's guilt. Sit down, Watson. Professor Van Helsing speaks the truth. I... Very well. Professor, earlier this evening you mentioned a name that was unfamiliar to me. Who is Count Dracula? Ah, uh, we struck a bargain, Minier Holmes. First, I must hear how you have come to know what you know. Oh, that is of little consequence. After reading in the newspapers of the recent occurrences concerning the woman in white, I came up to the heath to the spot most frequently alluded to in the reports. I followed what I believed to have been the impressions left by the blue lady's quite tangible feet to the Godalming crypt. After that, it was a simple matter to peruse back issues of the local Hampstead paper until I came upon the death notice of one Miss Lucy Westenra, betrothed of Lord Godalming and attended during her illness by Dr John Seward and Professor Abraham Van Helsing. When I learned that she had been transferred here from Whitby, my interest became acute. I made contact with Dr. Watson, and we travelled to the heath together. It did not seem to be going too far to identify the men we found gathered around the coffin this evening as those mentioned in the newspaper. Brilliant. But elementary. It is the very simplicity of the thing that I find so brilliant. But I have paid you compliments enough for one night. Who is Count Dracula? As well you may ask me, who is Lucifer? For the two have much in common. According to my friend, Professor Arminius of the University of Budapest, Dracula was that proud descendant of Attila's who led his horde against the bloodthirsty Turk over four centuries ago. 
Even then, in the days before it is said he offered his immortal soul to the evil one in return for everlasting life, Dracula was spoken of as Vampire Berserker. Still is he spoken of as such in the land which once he ruled. Jonathan Harker, in May of this year, journeyed to Castle Dracula in distant Transylvania to aid the Count in purchasing a suitable estate near London. Where is this estate? It is called Carfax. It stands upon a by-road at Perfleet. Minia Harker's stay in Transylvania was a circus of horrors from which he was able to escape only through terrible risk of his life. What took place after this estate was acquired by Dracula, I have been able to piece together from newspapers from my own experience. The appearance in Whitby of a Russian schooner piloted by a dead man last month, carrying a cargo of 50 boxes of earth, tells me that Dracula has docked in England. He it was who condemned our poor Miss Lucy to her undead state, from which we were able to free her only this evening. As her avengers, our next step is to seek him out in his present lair and destroy him before he can contaminate another soul. Oh, really? I see, Doctor, that you are sceptical. I most certainly am. Well, I once laughed, as you do, at the idea of vampires, of corpses that prey upon the blood of the living. I laugh no more, for I have seen the evidence of their unholy existence. Now I know their strengths and weaknesses as well as I know my own. By day they are powerless, then they rest in coffins upon or beneath the soil of their homeland. Until now, we who have studied Nosferatu, the undead, believed that this of necessity bound the vampire to his native shores. But by taking with him an ample supply of earth from Transylvania, Dracula is free to haunt the four corners of the globe with impunity so long as he may remain undetected. We know of his appetite. The deaths of nine seamen during the month-long voyage from Varna to Whitby told us this. We know from the appearance of what observers called an immense dog on board the beach ship that Dracula can change his shape at will. He can, at least in his immediate vicinity, command the elements, witness the sudden gale which struck Whitby on the night of the Demeter's arrival. Miss Lucy's rebirth as the Blufa Lady is evidence enough that his victims become themselves vampires. As if all these things are not enough, he has the strength in him of two dozen men who but a brute could have succeeded in hurling overboard the limp corpses of his victims at sea. So now you see, gentlemen, the magnitude of the task we have set for ourselves. Has he no weaknesses? Have you no weapons with which to combat this fiend? No weapons. We have a plenty. Wolfsbane is one, garlic another, but most feared is the Holy Cross and all that goes with it. By day and by night we may operate, while during the hours of sunlight Dracula must rest. And to bring to an end his unclean existence we have the wooden shaft. By such means may the vampire be rooted out. Bravo, Professor Van Helsing. You have laid out a preliminary plan of action much as I would have done myself. The information which you have provided is of great value. In return, my colleague and I would be happy to lend our own limited powers to the task you have so eloquently described. I am grateful, Minier Holmes, but that will not be necessary. 
I beg your pardon? Please do not take offence. It is not that we would not welcome the application of your remarkable powers to this labour, but rather that we would prefer to avoid notoriety. Even in my country we are familiar with the good doctor's accounts of your more interesting cases, and we are anxious not to have publicity that may panic all of Britain. I assure you, sir, that Dr. Watson and I will be most discreet. I am sorry. No, I must ask you to leave so that I may confer with my companions. Why, if you do not desire our assistance, have you told us so much about Dracula? Why didn't you simply refuse to take us into your confidence? I suppose I had. Would you have abandoned your investigation? Certainly not. There? You see? You are committing a grave error, Professor Van Helsing. I urge you to reconsider. The matter is closed. If either of you should attempt to interfere, I shall be forced to take drastic measures. Good day. Come, Watson. Good day, sir. Well, I suppose that's that. On the contrary, that is definitely not what it is. Whatever you mean, how can we go any further in this business without Van Helsing's aid? You are no longer sceptical? Oh, I'm always sceptical. But I admit I'm not so sure of my ground as I was. Good. Then you will journey with me tomorrow night to Perfleet, where we will pay a call upon the vampire in his lair. It was not quite dark the next evening when we stood before the entrance to Carfax's estate. Even though Van Helsing had not included bullets among the weapons he considered effective against our singular foe, Holmes had insisted we each carry a revolver. I felt as if I were being watched. The feeling increased as we drew near the building, until by the time we were standing before the iron-banded door, I was obsessed with the certainty that our every move was under the scrutiny of unseen eyes. Holmes succeeded in unlocking the door with the second key he tried, and with an effort, for the door was thick and heavy, we pushed it open. That's done it, I'm afraid. Step carefully, Watson. He knows we are here now. <sighs> what on earth is that foul smell? Quiet. We'll explore down that flight of steps. As I thought, the chapel. That stench, it comes from here. Raise your lantern. Do you see, Watson? Boxes. Coffin-shaped boxes. And look. Filled with earth. Does there... Wait. There are only 29. We must conclude that... Shh. What is it? There. Behind you. What? There was someone in the doorway. For a brief second, I'd swear it. Quick! After him! 
No! Back, Watson! Back! What is it? <gasps> Rats! Ah! Thousands <laughs> upon thousands of rats! Use your revolver, man! Clear the passage and run for the love of God! Run! <laughs> Come, Watson. Let's get away from this place as quickly as we can. Ghastly beasts. Ghastly indeed. And for a purpose. That little demonstration was designed to frighten us off with great success. Even so, we've won a victory. In what way? We've done nothing. Oh, on the contrary, we have determined that the Count has other hiding places. Otherwise, we would have found all 50 boxes of earth in the chapel. And how does that help us? Quick, into the Quick. bushes. Van Helsing. I dare say that the professor and his companions are in for a reception much like the one given to us. Wait until they're inside, and then we shall make our way home to Baker Street and a large whiskey apiece. You see, Watson, it is now that the true detective work begins. We know that Dracula has other lairs, and it's up to us to find them. Once we have accomplished this, it should be a simple matter to dispose of his precious Transylvanian soil, thus narrowing his opportunities of exploiting this country of ours. And if we should find the fiend himself? Then we must destroy him before he can spread his vampire pestilence throughout the Empire. Mm -hmm. We have no other choice. Hmm? That's odd. I heard no footsteps on the stairs. Come in. Good God. Mr. Sherlock Holmes... Welcome, Count Dracula. He was dressed entirely in black, his only concession to colour being the silver crook of a massive black cane he carried in one talon-like hand. His face was elongated and high-browed, tilted upwards in the manner of a member of a long and noble line, and pale almost to the point of translucence. His eyes glowed like smouldering embers beneath a pair of brows so wild and bushy that they almost met above the arch of his nose. The unruly shock of hair that topped his high-domed head was jet black, with a single streak of steely grey shooting up from the centre of the ragged widow's peak. But it was his teeth, the dagger-sharp canine teeth peering out between bright red lips that held my attention. They were the fangs of a predator. Yes, I am Dracula, but how... That mirror on the wall, it reflects only an open door. <sighs> mirrors. I detest mirrors. But you are indeed observant, and I am honoured to make your acquaintance, sir. Even in the country of my birth, we have been fortunate enough to read of your marvellous exploits against the English criminal. No, you flatter me, Count. Your reputation precedes you as well. Perhaps you would care to join my colleague and myself in some whiskey. What's in a glass? Thank you. Me. I do not drink alcoholic beverages. The hours of the night are few, and I have much to do before morning. I will state my business, and then you will be rid of me. Hmm. Would that were true, Count Dracula? You are an outspoken man, Mr. Holmes. In my country, that is a dangerous tray. I advise you to guard your tongue in my presence. My dear Count, we are both too old to waste time upon these pleasantries. 
How may I be of service to you? Earlier this evening, you paid a visit to my home. I would like to know why. Oh, I think we both know the answer to that question. So we do. When I learned that it was you who had invaded my Purfleet residence, I realized that my activities in England had attracted your professional interest, an interest which I can hardly afford at this stage of my operations. I am here to ask you to abandon your investigations before they do real harm. If that is your purpose, then I'm afraid that you have come here for nothing. I am a wealthy man, Mr. Holmes. I promise you that you will not regret having granted me this one favor. I urge you to consider what I ask. You think that you have faced all the terrors that the world has to offer, Mr. Holmes, but you have barely scratched the surface. Jonathan Harker was driven mad by but a few of the myriad forces that are mine to command. He was fortunate. Even as we stand here, those forces are gathering, responding to my unspoken instructions with but one purpose in mind, to destroy all obstacles which stand in my path. From icy graves they arise, from gallows and tombs, for all that die are my agents. They are the army of the dead. How may one mortal expect to triumph over such an enemy? Your tales are wasted on me, Count Dracula. I am no more frightened by them than I was by your rats. The rats were a warning. I assure you that when I decide to act in earnest, you will not escape. I've heard enough. You may show our visit to the door, Watson. That will not be necessary. There are far worse things than death, Mr. Holmes. Persist, and I promise that you will find out what I mean. Ooh. Do you notice the cold, Watson? Yeah. I thought the same thing the moment we entered Carfax. It is the miasma that surrounds Count Dracula. Ah. It grows warmer now that he has left. <clears throat> A most informative confrontation. What do you suppose he thought to accomplish by coming here? Hmm? I should think that's obvious. He hoped to persuade you to stop interfering with his plans. When bribery failed, he resorted to threats. No, Watson. Dracula had no intention of inducing me to leave him alone. That was merely his excuse to come here and observe his enemy in his natural habitat. Now, I must dispatch some telegrams to Whitby. Within a few hours, I should be able to find out where the remainder of the 50 boxes were sent. Where they are, Dracula cannot be far away. In spite of the cavalier fashion in which my friend had dismissed the fiend's visit, it was obvious that the episode had unnerved him. Twice I awoke during the night to hear the melancholy strains of Holmes's violin, a sure sign that he was too preoccupied with the problem at hand to sleep. It was during these periods that I feared most for my friend's health. For though I had succeeded in curing him of the terrifying addiction which had once threatened to destroy that wonderful brain, I knew the temptation was still there. The next morning, his spirit seemed restored, and these improved still further upon the arrival of a series of telegrams. Success, Watson! I have learned all of Dracula's hiding places in London. I am delighted to hear it. On August the 10th, 50 boxes of earth were put on a train for London and upon arrival placed in four separate locations according to instructions. 
Among these locations was Carfax's estate. We will, I assume, visit each of the places mentioned? On the contrary, we will do nothing. Nothing? Well, we'd only be covering territory that's already been covered. My informants tell me that another gentleman has also been making inquiries. I can only assume that this was Jonathan Harker. No doubt he's already imparted the information to Van Helsing, and they are even now in the process of destroying Dracula's places of rest. Why gild the lily? Then Dracula is finished? Oh, I doubt that, Watson. I doubt that very much. I fail to understand you, Holmes. You begin by counselling inaction, and then you tell me that England is still at the mercy of this hideous creature. I've never known you to be so apathetic in the face of such a crisis. <laughs> I see no humour in the situation. Oh, I'm sorry, my dear fellow. I'm, I've done you a great injustice. No, the Count is growing nervous. Why else would he have visited me here yesterday evening and tried to buy me off? It was an act of desperation, and you and I both know that desperate men make mistakes. That is what I meant when I suggested that we do nothing. I should have made clear the fact that we will be waiting. Waiting? For what? For Count Dracula to make his first mistake. I assure you, Watson, it will be his last as well. I have never known my friend Sherlock Holmes to be more reclusive and difficult to talk to than he was during the opening days of October 1890. As hour followed hour with no news that would give us a clue to the progress of Count Dracula's activities, the detective withdrew into a shell of secrecy and quiet that even I could not hope to crack. It was not until four o'clock on the afternoon of the third, when a messenger appeared at our door with a note addressed to him, that Holmes so far unbent as to speak to me in words of more than a single syllable. It's from Inspector Lestrade. Hmm? He wishes to see me. Now get on your coat, Watson. This could be the news for which we've been waiting. Oh, where are we headed? To the Whitechapel mortuary, where the inspector awaits us. I'm glad you could make it, Mr. Holmes. This is the most serious business we are involved in today. What's happened? The Ripper is up to his old tricks. A mistake, certainly. Well, I wish it was, Dr. Watson. But the evidence is too conclusive. Where is the victim? Under the sheet, over there. I warn you, it's not a pleasant sight. Mm. Replace the sheet. Who was she? A prostitute by the name of Rachel North. A policeman found her slumped inside a doorway in the next street from here at three o'clock this morning. She'd been dead at least an hour by then. And what makes you think that this is the work of Jack the Ripper? Who but old Leather Apron himself would slash an inoffensive prostitute's throat and leave her to drown in her own blood? Her throat was more than slashed, Inspector. It was torn right out. And how do you explain the absence of any other wounds on her body? Where is the skilful dissection on which the Ripper prides himself? Well, I imagine he was interrupted before he could finish. It won't stand up. Why was the body not found until three o'clock this morning if the culprit was surprised in the act an hour before? As for your theory that she drowned in her own blood, how can you reconcile that with the fact that there is very little blood to be found either around the wound or on the corpse? Or has the Ripper found a new souvenir to take home with him? I suppose you have a theory that will cover all the facts? I have a theory, but I doubt very strongly that you will believe it. Let us be off, Watson. It's growing dark and our time is short. You don't mean to say that you're giving up on the case? I mean to say that we are leaving. My advice to you, Inspector, is to abandon any preconceptions you may have formed regarding the Ripper's involvement in this crime. We stalk a far more dangerous foe. 
And my advice to you, Mr Sherlock Holmes, is to keep your advice to yourself. The Yard is quite capable of apprehending its criminals without your help. I invited you in today merely because I knew that this is the sort of thing that interests you. But I can see that it's quite over your head. <laughs> Lestrade never ceases to astound me. Each time I see him, he's grown more stubborn and unimaginative than he was the time before. Do you think it was Dracula who mutilated that poor woman? Who else? It was unlike him, however, to have made such an untidy job of it. I can only think that he's desperate and in a hurry. Otherwise, he'd have taken pains to see that the body was never found. I think, Watson, that Dracula is preparing to leave. Leave? For where? I cannot say. Transylvania, perhaps. Mm, it would seem a wise choice under the circumstances. And yet it is not like the Count to give up so easily. He may alter his plans, but it's doubtful that he would reverse them simply because they're known to his enemies. No, Watson, I fear that whatever Dracula's next step may be, it will not be surrender. Well, as long as we're on the subject of the next step, what form will our own take? Tell me, Doctor, why do you suppose our quarry chose Whitechapel as a place to strike when he had all of London from which to choose? Perhaps because here the prey is easiest? Perhaps, but does the lion ever hunt for food beyond the immediate vicinity of his home? No, never. Do you think that... Considering Dracula's preference for long-abandoned buildings, we should have little difficulty in locating a suitable place within a half-mile radius. There is a building nearby which once sheltered a slaughterhouse, but which has been empty for some time. That would, indeed, make a suitable hiding place for such a murderer. Come, Watson. It's getting dark. There's no time to waste. Look, Watson. The entrance to the slaughterhouse. It's open. He's here, I'm certain. Now, quietly now. Right. Those men are... Yes. It's one of the boxes from the ship. They're loading it onto that wagon. The Count is preparing for his departure. Any sign of him? No. He... Wait. It's all ready. Yes, sir. Good. Who's that over there? Good evening, Count Dracula. Fools! What brainless idiots you are to have come all this way to die! Hollow words, Count. Instruct your servants to unload the box. No! Stop! Watson, Watson, look out! He'll run you down! Watson, Watson, are you all right? He's escaped, Holmes. Oh, I would rather have him escape a hundred times than have you harmed once, dear friend. But cease worrying. We'll find him soon enough. Indeed, and how do you propose to do that? Do you recall the affair of Jonathan Small and his diminutive partner and how we tracked them through London's busy streets? Uh, Toby! A dog with a nose for criminals. He should have little trouble following the path of so clumsy a mode of transportation as a wagon. Yes, I seem to recall that Small's accomplice had stepped in some creosote, which allowed the dog to sniff the two of them out. How do you expect Toby to differentiate between the tracks left by the wagon and those of the thousands of other vehicles which pass along the oh, street? Oh, come now, Watson. Have you forgotten where we are? Yeah, a slaughterhouse, but... Are you words? telling me that any self-respecting dog would find it difficult to track down a wagon whose wheels have rolled over ground rich in blood and entrails? Uh, Holmes, you're a genius. <laughs> Do you feel up to collecting Toby from his owner and bringing him here? Ready and willing, Holmes. We must have made quite a sight for the early evening strollers in Whitechapel. One man being pulled along by a whooping mongrel, while another hurried along in their wake, puffing and holding onto his hat with one hand. 
I grew uneasy as we emerged from the twisting dark alleys of the East End and entered more familiar surroundings. And how can I describe the cold sensation that began to gnaw at my heart when the trail veered towards my own neighbourhood? I told myself that my fears were groundless, that it was most likely nearby Paddington Station to which the fiend was heading, there to book passage elsewhere. We had gone scarcely another hundred yards when my worst apprehensions were realised. With a mighty lunge, the dog tore off the leash from my friend's grip and bounded up the stairs of my own building to where the front door stood halfway open. He disappeared inside, his triumphant barks ceasing suddenly inside the entrance. We followed him in and came across the dog, crouched on the linoleum with his head down and his tail tucked between his legs. At first I could see no reason for this curious behaviour, but slowly I became aware of the strange and terrible aura that filled the hall. It was the unearthly chill that Count Dracula took with him from the grave. He's been here, Holmes! Oh, sir! Sir! Is it you? Who's that? It's Mrs. Barton, sir, from next door. Where's my wife, Mrs. Barton? What's happened? Oh, gently, Watson, gently. There, there, Mrs. Barton. There, there's nothing to be afraid of. Oh, sir. Tell us what happened. I was visiting Mrs. Watson, sir. She was feeling poorly and I was giving her tea. And then the door burst open and in he comes. Tall he was, all dressed in black with eyes blazing red as cops. Go on. Mrs. Watson was in her robe and nightgown. She gathers them round her and demands to know who he is and what he's doing here. You are Mary Watson, he says. I am, says she. My time is short and I have a long journey ahead of me, he says. Come. He swung her up in his arms and he carried her, kicking and screaming she was to the door. There he stops and looks back at me. He had the devil's own eyes. They burned like all the fires of hell were behind them. I thought it was over for me. Mrs Watson had fainted and he held her like a rag doll. Then he said, inform the doctor that no harm will befall his wife if he and his friend do not follow. Then he ups and vanishes into the fog at the top of the steps. Oh, God. I was scared stiff he'd come back for me. So I ran and hid myself in the closet. When I heard the door opening, I was sure he'd come back for me, but then I heard your voice, Dr Watson, and I'd come down. Now, one more question, Mrs Barton. Yes. Did he say anything about where he was going? Uh, no, sir. But after he left, I thought I heard the wheels of a wagon or a four-wheeler going off in the direction of King's Cross. I see. Thank you, Mrs Barton. You have been most helpful. Now, you'd better go home Thank now. You, sir. You will be quite safe. Thank you, sir. He has her. The fiend has my wife. It is my belief that the Count is a man of his word. I have little doubt he will release Mrs. Watson unharmed if we do not follow. And then what? Whose wife will be his next victim? We cannot afford to let this vile thing remain on the face of the earth, Holmes. No matter what the cost. Even at the risk of your wife's soul? Even so. Good fellow. How can I help but take you for granted when your character is so consistently strong? We will return Toby to his owner and then be off to King's Cross Station. This tale will have a happy ending yet. 
The third clerk we talked to at King's Cross remembered having sold a ticket to Whitby to a tall, dark man, but expressed no recollection of a woman answering to Mary's description in his company. He did recall, however, that the passenger had an oblong box with him which was loaded into the guard's van and that it took three men to lift it. He told us the next train to Whitby was not until six o'clock the following morning. Too late. It's as I thought. He has her shut up in the box. Uh, what now? It's ten o'clock at night. The villain has a head start on us and we have no way of following. On the contrary, Watson. I know of a certain coachman not far from here who can match the fastest train on the aisle. With his help, we may be in Whitby in time to apprehend Dracula before he leaves the country. I shall not attempt to describe the harrowing journey we took between London and Whitby, other than to say that it aged me considerably. All that night and throughout the next day we travelled, stopping only three times to change horses. But we were hampered by thick fog, and when we finally arrived at midnight on October the 4th, we knew it had all been to no avail. The train had arrived hours before us. Do not be depressed, Watson. I think I know where our quarry went from here. Hmm? Driver, to the shipping offices at the docks. Someone there should remember a man of Dracula's description booking passage for himself and a large box of earth. We were in luck. The clerk at the first shipping office we went into had served a man answering to Dracula's description earlier that evening. He had booked a passage for himself and an oblong box on the Tsarina Catherine, a ship sailing for Varna on the Black Sea at eight the following night. Varna, the Demeter's port of departure. We lost no time in making for the dockside and soon came across one of the men who had helped Dracula. A surly fellow. Yes, I remember him. He wanted a box loaded onto the Catherine, offered to pay well he did. But first he wanted the contents transferred to an empty crate that was lying on the dock. What? And the box filled with sand from the beach. By the time I got back with the sand, the crate was gone. When the box was filled, he told me to load it onto the Catherine. So, the box on the Catherine is a decoy. What sort of a creature are you to help another in the abduction of an innocent woman for a mere piece of gold? What kind of bilge is that? There weren't no woman with him, abducted or otherwise. And where is this crate you mentioned? Oh, search me. Like I told you, it was gone when I got back with the sand. What ships have left this harbour within the last hour? Uh, two, I think. I heard a steamer blowing its whistle half an hour ago, and I hoped an American clipper cast off a bit before that. They must both have been overdue, else they wouldn't have left till the fog lifted. What do you know of these vessels? Well, the steamer would be the King Henry, bound for Australia. The other's the Baltimore, trader out of Boston. Where is my wife? The mesmeric powers of the vampire are nearly without limit, as you know only too well, Watson. It is likely that Dracula commanded her to remain out of sight until he had concluded his business. Where can we hire a motor launch? Who are you? What do you want about? I've a good mind to call for a coast guard, have you both arrested? Who is this bloke you're after? What's it to do with you? <sighs> I will explain. My name is Sherlock Holmes, and my companion You're here... Sherlock Holmes? That is correct. Oh, I've been waiting a long time to meet you, Mr. Holmes. My name's Ned Bridger. Well, surely you remember my brother Morgan, who was skipper of the Alicia, when it sailed into that patch of fog in the Channel ten years ago? Your gratitude is misplaced, I fear. <laughs> The disappearance of the Alicia is one problem I was never able to solve. But you prove from a brother's record that whatever happened to that ship couldn't have been due to any error on his part, as the authorities said. 
For that, I'll always be indebted to you, Mr. Holmes. <laughs> you're, you're too kind. At present, however, we are in need of a boat. Well, I know of a steam launch moored near here. The owner would never be the wiser if we borrowed it. Excellent. Now, if you would um, kindly release your grip upon my hand oh. and lead us to the vessel in question, we can explain the reason for our being here and the villain we are after. Make haste, my dear fellow. The Baltimore has too much of a head start upon us already. Follow me! Why not the King Henry, Holmes? Ah, the distance to Australia is too great. Considering Dracula's appetite, he would run out of crew members long before he reached the port. No, Watson, he is on his way to the conquest of the United States of America, and the arrangement involving the Tarina Catherine was merely part of an elaborate device to throw us off the track. We drew a sketchy account for Ned Bridger of our hunt for Count Dracula, leaving out the incredible fact of his vampire existence and concentrating on his role of murderer and kidnapper. By the end of it, that worthy seaman was willing to do all he could to help us. The diminutive steamer proved to have ample fuel aboard, and Ned Bridger succeeded in getting the engine into operation. At Holmes's insistence, I took control of the tiller while he stood in the bow. We eased out into the gloom of the harbour. The fog, which had parted sluggishly to allow us entrance, soon closed in about us until we seemed to be floating through eternal night. I was reminded of Van Helsing's claim that the vampire was capable of controlling the weather within his immediate vicinity. If this was so, then we were closer to our quarry than I had dared hope. Starving a bit on that rudder, Doctor. Starving it is. If our bird expects to reach the open sea, he's got to miss that reef first. Holmes, there it is, on the port bow. That's the light on their forecastle. Full speed ahead, Bridger. Overtake her. I'll do what I can, but if we fetch up on that reef, it's a watery grave for us all. And getting away. He spotted us, blasted. The captain and crew must be under his control. More speed, Bridger. Throw on more fuel. Impossible. The boiler is about to go up like a Roman candle as it is. More speed, I say. All right. Meet you in hell. This is Dracula's work. He's using the weather to elude us. Boiler's going to blow! Can you swim to the shore from here? further! Then let me have the throttle and you jump overboard. Watson and I will take it from here. This boat is my responsibility. I'll not turn it over to any landlubber. Don't be a fool, Bridger. You have nothing to gain by these heroics. Sorry, mister, I can't hear you. Holmes, look! The Baltimore's turning. It's heading straight for the shore. It's heading straight for the reef as well. Dracula must be unaware of its existence. Oh, Mary. Holmes, look. On the deck of the Baltimore, there are men leaping into the sea. Yes, no doubt they prefer the ocean to the reef. The boiler's going! Into the water, Watson! No, no, Holmes! In it's you! Go! The water was cold as death, but that was hardly my first concern. There was a tremendous explosion, and the harbour was thrown into blazing brightness. Debris of the steam launch splashed down around me. My first thought was of Holmes. Had he, too, succeeded in quitting the craft before the boiler burst? Holmes! Holmes! There was no reply. Just the thunder and pouring rain. This, then, was how it ended. 
All the deduction, all the hours spent poring over clues and following the trails left by criminals throughout England and the continent, all the telegrams from the powerful and the destitute requesting aid in solving mysteries of the most baffling nature, all had come to nothing more than an icy grave in a remote English harbour. It was with lead in my heart that I began swimming towards the shore. And then I saw it. The Baltimore perched not 20 feet away from me. There was a great gaping hole in the bow where it had struck the reef close to the shore, but other than that, the vessel appeared to be unharmed. My relief upon spotting the evidence that my wife may not have perished was tempered by a sobering thought. Where was Dracula? In the next instant, my question was answered, for a jagged streak of lightning illuminated the scene, and I saw the fiend standing on the forecastle, holding the limp form of my beloved Mary. Whether she was alive or dead was something I could not tell at that distance. For a long moment, we were motionless, glaring at each other across the score of feet that separated us. Then Dracula turned and disappeared into the captain's cabin. That I had been challenged to follow was a certainty. I felt a chill that had nothing to do with the temperature or my soaked condition. Sherlock Holmes was dead, and I was alone against Count Dracula. I struck out towards the beached vessel in search of the best way to board her without being observed by the vampire and had waded stealthily into the shadows on the clipper's far side when suddenly a hand was clapped firmly over my mouth. The slightest sound would prove disastrous to our plans. Holmes! What miracle is this? How is it that you survived that terrible explosion? Surviving that terrible explosion was not as difficult as you might think for the simple reason that I was not there when it occurred. I jumped. Wonderful. But where's Bridger? Is he with you? No, Watson. He is not. Do you mean? I jumped with Bridger's assurance that he would be right behind me. Whether he was telling the truth or not is a moot point. Since the boiler blew just as I hit the water, he did not have time to jump. He was a brave man. And it's up to us to see that he did not die in vain. You saw Dracula a few minutes ago? Yes. He has Mary with him. So I observed. Under the Count's manipulation, she appears to have exchanged the role of hostage for another one as bait. I am dead, or so he thinks. And he has so far underestimated your intelligence as to believe he can lure you into a trap. You will, of course, not disappoint him. What do you mean? I will give you five minutes. Enter the hold through the aperture in the bow. Dracula will not be expecting that. It's too obvious. Wait until you hear two gunshots outside. Ascend to the deck and make your way to the captain's cabin where you will find your wife waiting for you. When you have her, shout it out for all the world to hear. Then make for the shore as fast as possible. I don't have to remind you that Mrs. Watson's life as well as your own depends upon the speed you will be making. And what will you be doing all this time? I am going to create a diversion. You charted yourself a dangerous course. <laughs> One hour at sea and already your speech is becoming nautical. But speed is vital, Watson. We've wasted one of your allotted five minutes already. I climbed through the hole in the clipper's bow and picked my way down the tilted deck towards the wooden ladder that led into the open, there to await Holmes's signal. As soon as I heard the shots, I lost no time in clambering up the ladder. My alacrity nearly cost me my life. No sooner had I reached the top deck than I felt a sudden chill. Immediately, I dived to the nearest shadow. From between the captain's cabin and the starboard railing, I saw a black-cloaked figure hasten past within touching distance of my hand. I ducked in through the doorway of the cabin as soon as Dracula's back was towards me and peered anxiously through the gloom. There was Mary. She looked very frail indeed, 
Her blue eyes were wide, not with terror, as I had expected them to be, but with unseeing stupor. I recognized the signs of hypnosis. My first act was to examine her throat for punctures. There were none. Thanking God for delivering her from that horror, I gathered her into my arms and carried her to the deck. Dracula was speaking as I got to the door. So you live still. Did you think I would go to my grave and leave you here to prey on whom you please? Where is your companion? I have her, Holmes. What? Run, Watson, run. No, I don't... Fire your pitiable weapon, Sherlock Holmes. See what good it does you. Against the man who commanded armies hundreds of years before you were born. Run, Watson, as you value your life, run. Well, Dr. Watson. I... I... Look into my eyes, Dr. Watson. My eyes... You are unable to move, Dr. Watson. Unable to speak. You are mine. Huh? No! Yes! Beware the sun, Count Dracula. Ah. It will sap your strength as surely as did the shears of Samson's Delilah. Witness its purifying rays. Soon they will reach the ship and then your power will cease to be. That is when we shall destroy you. Are you all right, Watson? Ye yes. Yes, I, I think so. And your wife? Has he harmed her? He's not had that chance, thanks to you. But she's in a trance and suffering from exposure. Then we'll get her to a hospital as quickly as possible. What about Dracula? Was, was that great wolf that leapt ashore really him? It was. You're not going to let him get away? No, Watson. The Tsarina Catherine does not sail until 8 o'clock this evening. In the meantime, let us attend to your wife. We carried her still fragile form along the reef to the shore and thence to the local hospital. All day... We waited outside her room as she hovered precariously between life and death. It seemed an eternity. Towards evening, tired out by the previous night's exertions, I was dozing on a bench in the hospital corridor when Holmes nudged me to consciousness. Watson. Oh, no. What? I'm afraid I shall have to leave you for a while. Huh? Are you not going to wait for word on Mary's condition? The Tsarina Catherine sails at eight. It's now considerably after seven. Oh, yes. I have less than 45 minutes in which to return to the docks and settle the vampire's fate for good. I pray that Mrs. Watson will be out of danger by the time I return. I'm going with you. No. Hmm? You would be worse than useless with your wife in her present condition. Besides, what will she think when she awakes and you are not there? No, no Watson, true. no. You owe it to yourself to remain here. I... I will see you later. Uh, nurse, how's my wife? She's resting peacefully. She's not out of danger yet, but the worst part of the crisis is over. Oh, thank God. May I see her? Very well, but only for a few minutes. Thank you. Mary? Mm. I knew it was you as soon as I heard your footsteps. I'm something of a detective myself, you see. My dear. Mm. You look as if you could use a bed yourself, Dr. Watson. Dracula! 
Do not fear. I have not come to do mischief. Then why are you here? And where is Holmes? Your friend, I suspect, is in the process of discovering that I am not on board the Tsarina Catherine. He will know that quickly piece together my movements since leaving and will soon be on his way here. My time grows short. My business will not take more than a moment. And what is your business? Curiosity, Dr. Watson. Curiosity? I can understand Professor Van Helsing's motives in wishing to destroy me. To Sherlock Holmes, I am a challenge, and I have learned from your accounts of his adventures that he cannot survive without such challenges. It is you, Doctor, whom I cannot comprehend. I am at a loss to explain your purpose in pursuing this dangerous path. I speak not of your wife's abduction, although why you should jeopardize her safety by continuing your pursuit is a problem in itself. But from the beginning... You have shown an ungovernable enthusiasm for this chase. Why? What spell has Sherlock Holmes placed on you that has made you his accomplice in this mad scheme? I have risked everything by coming here, and I must have an answer before I return to my homeland. Sherlock Holmes is my friend. That is your answer? It is the only one I have. I see. I must go. Farewell, doctor! What? Where is he? He, 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 he dived out of the window, Holmes, and, uh, and suddenly he became a great bat. He's on his way back to the Tsarina Catherine, no doubt. Your wife, Watson. Has he harmed her? No, he didn't touch her. What did he want? He wanted to know why I should wish to aid you in your pursuit of him. Oh. And uh, did he receive an answer? Yes. Thank you, Watson. Well, what about Dracula? Are we going after him? No. His ship will have sailed by the time we reach the docks. What? The crew were making final preparations when I left. He will not touch ground again until he reaches Varna. Well, what is stopping us from following him to Varna and resuming our pursuit? I think, Watson, that we shall leave that task for Van Helsing and his friends. Our part in the drama ends here. It is not like you to quit a case before it is finished, Holmes. Most it is finished. We have accomplished what we set out to do. But what if Van Helsing is unable to trace Dracula back to his homeland in a year's time? The fiend may try again. Do not underestimate the professor. He is a relentless man. He and his companions will follow Dracula night and day, and they will not give up until they have sent the sanguinary count to the eternal rest that has been waiting for him for over 400 years. Our reward is the knowledge that it is we who put him on the defensive and rescued England from the vampire's clutches. I think that is enough for two middle-aged men, don't you? It was November, just over a month since we had driven the nightmare from our shores. I was sitting at my desk, my afternoon's work done, or so I thought. Someone to see you, my dear. Hmm? Working late, Watson? Oh, Holmes! I'll leave you two men together. My dear Holmes, 
You'll have a drink? Oh, thank you, no, Watson. I have a hansom waiting outside. I merely stopped by to show you this telegram. Hmm? All is well. He is dead. For services uninvited, gratitude. V.H. Varner. V.H. Van Helsing. Oh! It appears that Dracula's threat is ended. Reluctant though the professor's thanks seem, they are the mark of a proud man. And I should be glad to add his telegram to my collection of memorabilia. I did not know that he was aware of our continued involvement in the affair. I told you before not to underestimate him. But I must go. I have a small matter awaiting my urgent attention. Oh, uh, well, could I... Uh... Oh, no, 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 my dear fellow. I wouldn't dream of taking you away from your practice so soon after the last time. Besides, the affair may prove dangerous, and uh, your wife... Oh, uh... Mary will understand. No, not when she is informed of who it is that has crossed my path yet again. Who? Can you not guess? One as evil and cunning in every respect as the fiend whose life we now know to be over. Not... Yes, Watson. Professor Moriarty is up to his old tricks again. That's I... it. No, no, do not attempt to dissuade me, Holmes. It would be useless. <laughs> I'm coming with you. Mary! In Sherlock Holmes vs. Dracula, a play for radio by Glenn Dearman from the writings of Dr. John H. Watson as edited by Lauren D. Estelman, John Moffat was Sherlock Holmes, Timothy West, Dr. Watson, David March, Count Dracula, and Aubrey Woods, Professor Van Helsing. Parker was played by Michael Maloney, Bridger by John Hollis, Mrs. Barton by Catherine Parr, Mr. Catherine by Noel Howlett. Inspector Lestrade by Nicholas Courtney, Mary Watson by Teresa Stretfield, and The Vampire by Francis Jeter. The play was directed by Glenn Dearman. <laughs>